I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Um, so as you likely saw from uh, our airport adventures on social media, uh, Jen Hobson and Shannon Chastain and I were privileged last month to attend the Drive Church Leaders Conference at North Point Community Church uh, last month in Atlanta. <clears throat> it was led by their pastor, uh, Andy Stanley. Uh, North Point has this kind of infectious vision to equip churches to create irresistible environments. And the reason they do this is not because they love bells and whistles and smoke machines and all that camera stuff. The reason they do this is because they have a laser-focused passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their point of view is that the gospel, by definition, is offensive. It's offensive because it tells people that they are sinners in need of a Savior, and we would be doing Jesus a disservice if we sugarcoated that or implied that it was merely hyperbole designed to get you to follow Christ's moral agenda. The gospel addresses the real human problem of sinfulness and how it creates distance not only between us and God, but also between us and others. As such, it is offensive in that there is bad news to convey before there is good news to proclaim. There's the bad news of human sinfulness and the reality of human sinfulness before we get to the good news of Christ's sacrificial death and his new life offered to us through the resurrection. So at North Point, uh, their goal is to create church environments that are so welcoming, so hospitable, so loving, that people will come to church be offended by this gospel, and then come back next week for another round of offending. This is how, uh, this affects uh, how they view everything from parking lot ministry to kids ministry to the worship time. And our big takeaway from that conference in regards to how we're doing uh, ministry here at New Hope was this desire to kind of up our game in the area of Sunday morning welcome team, kind of what we're doing to welcome folks if, uh, to, to, uh, to our community on a Sunday morning. That's kind of why uh, the last couple of weeks you've noticed we've had just, we've encouraged kids to get out there with like, I think there was a bubble machine out there today and there's um, sidewalk chalk and there was balloons flying up. And it, the, the idea is that we want to try to encourage people um, to come early on a Sunday morning so that you're not walking in at like 10.05, um, you know, for those with ears to hear. And um, so that it actually looks like something's going on here as people kind of drive past. It's, it's just something we're trying to do to try to welcome uh, visitors. And if that's something that interests you, I'd encourage uh, you to speak to myself or to Jen Hobson. Uh, we'd love to give you an opportunity to serve in kind of an official capacity on that team uh, I don't know, maybe there's like a, a bubble machine person that needs to be assigned. I, I don't know. Andy Stanley has been one of those church figures, like Tim Keller or N.T. Wright, um, who has affected the life of, of our church, of New Hope Community Church, um, has, as his work kind of makes its way through our community. A few years ago, our elders, they worked through his book, Deep and Wide, 
which I'd commend to all of you. It's a book on the church and kind of creating churches that unchurched people feel welcome at. And in it, he asks two simple questions. He says, first of all, what is the church? And two, and second, who is it for? How you answer those questions. How would you answer those questions this morning? Kind of think about that. What is the church and who is it for? Some might want to argue that the church is for Christians. Other might want to say that the church is for the lost. Some might say that the church is for the religious. Others people might say that the church is for the poor. Some might want to rightly point out that the church is where worship happens in its various capacities. Others would would rightly point out that the church is the launching pad for mission. And I think that all of that is true, but none of that is how I would personally answer that question. For me, I'd answer the question like this. What is the church? The church is Jesus' bride. Who is the church for? The church is for Jesus. I think that when we start our relationship to Jesus, when we position our relationship to Jesus as the center of our existence, the center of our purpose, the center of everything that we do, everything else that we have to say about worship and discipleship and mission are going to fall into place. And as you'll see from the cover of our bulletin, the title of today's sermon is The Church and Her Advocate. The church is Jesus' bride. After Jesus' earthly ministry, after his life, after the um, the resurrection, after the cross and the resurrection, after his commissioning to the disciples, Jesus then ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he took his place as king. And before he left, he gave the church a job to do, to spread the gospel, and told them that he's going to send an advocate to help them get the job done. He's going to send a a comforter, uh, not like a blanket. He's going to send a a counselor. Uh, He's going to send an encourager. In the Greek, the book of John um, uses the word uh, parakletos, which literally means one who comes alongside another. This advocate is the one who empowers the church to be the church as we spread the gospel, as we fulfill the Great Commission to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. See, he, he, he is the Holy Spirit of God, this comforter, the third member of the Trinity, this advocate, alongside the Father and the Son When we say the Nicene Creed, we speak of the Holy Spirit like this. We say, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. He is spoken through the prophets. The Spirit, you see, is not an impersonal force. You know, finish your training, you will. He is a personal uh, being. He gives gifts of talent and purpose to the church. He he sanctifies us, aiding in our transformation to be more like Christ. Before Jesus' earthly ministry began, there um, there was this wilderness man named John the Baptist who was baptizing people in the Jordan River. We might say that John the Baptist was a prophet. 
And while he was baptizing people, he said, Hey, 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 after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. You see, I've baptized you with water, but he, he's talking about Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we are remade in the image of Christ to the glory of the Father. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, we are baptized in the refiner's fire that allows us to be who we were created to be in the first place. You see, we were created by our Father in His image. And the closer that you and I get to God, the more ourselves we become. You want to know the real you? You want to know who you really are at your core? Look at who you're becoming in God by the power of the Holy Spirit. You want to know what your life's purpose is? Look at who you are by who you are becoming in God by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's unfortunate that the evangelical church doesn't really know, hasn't really known what to do with the Holy Spirit. And part of that comes from our love of Jesus and our desire to keep him at the center of all that we are. But it's vital for us to remember that it was Jesus who sent the Spirit to dwell within us. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is having a final conversation with his disciples before he ascends into heaven. And his disciples ask them, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples are still piecing this whole thing together. When they ask about restoration to the kingdom, they were wondering if now would finally be the time when Israel would come out on top and the rest of the world would be under their thumb. Others had dominated them. Others had oppressed them for far too long. They had been occupied by Gentile powers like the Roman Empire. But now with this this new leader who can apparently raise from the dead... They are now positioned to be top dog again, right? And our first response might be to say, oh, no, 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 guys. You, you, you don't get it. You're, not, you're thinking about earthly things. Get your mind on the things of God. But it's interesting that Jesus doesn't correct them. He says something else. The second slide. He says, it is not for you to know the times or, or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So first of all, if you're looking for a calendar... For how all of this is going to play out, remember that God has authority over time itself. Everything that has come down and everything that will come down in the future will do so in the fullness of time as it is defined by Him. It's incredible to me to see how many Christians desire to pick apart sections of Scripture like Revelation um, in order to predict when the end times are going to be. And they'll say things like, well, I'm sure we're living in the end times, right? And I'd say, sure, as long as Christians a thousand years ago were living in the end times as well. 
And if Christ hasn't returned, Christians a thousand years from now will be living in the end times. I think the real danger is that Christians sometimes like to say things like, well, we're surely living in the end times. Don't you read the newspaper? Don't you see how bad things are getting now? And it's kind of a way that when they say that, it's a way of them pointing out how bad off the world is. And in that light, preoccupation with times and seasons can be a hindrance on the mission of the church because it assumes that we really don't have much work to do out there because God's going to set fire to all this any minute now. So we ought to just hunker down and be the church, right? Here Jesus is saying, no, 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 you don't get a calendar. God alone has authority over such things. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. For God so loved the world. God didn't hate the world. He wants the world to be saved. He wants it to be redeemed. He wants it to be resurrected. But I'll tell you what you do get, Jesus says. You get the power to do the work that I've called you to do. The word power is the word dunamin, which is where we get the word dynamite. The church is poised to explode onto the scene of the first century world, and it will indeed shake the foundation of the very Roman Empire itself, but these things will happen in God's time, not yours. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will empower the church to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, the place that will be the first command central for the church's operations. But then the church will expand outward from Jerusalem into the expanding countryside of Judea. Then it'll continue north. It'll continue north into the neighboring enemy territory of Samaria. We spoke a few weeks ago about what it looks like to be a neighbor to Samaria. Ultimately, Jesus' followers will be empowered to spread the gospel message to the ends of the earth, fulfilling not only the Acts 1-8 mandate, fulfilling not only the Great Commission, but also the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12. That through the descendants, that through Abraham's descendants, all the family, families of the earth shall be blessed. In the Inu Hope this past Friday, I included a quote from the church father Tertullian, who said the coming of Christ was the fulfilling of the law. The coming of the Holy Spirit is the fulfilling of the gospel. Jesus is on the throne, and he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in the heart of the church and empowers the church to be the church. The rest of Acts chapter 1 tells the story of how the disciples replaced Judas Iscariot with Matthias and then In Acts 2, we hear the story of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Turn with me in Acts chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Very important little detail there. And suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the entrance of the Holy Spirit into the story comes with this 
mighty wind filling this place where the church has been gathered together. And this wind gave way to their tongues being set aflame. And for a moment, it allowed some to speak uh, to each other in their own language. And others who, speak, who didn't speak that language understood what they were saying. It, it would have been like if, I, if you um, were French, and even though I was speaking in English, you heard me speaking French to you. This is a peculiar episode, but I think that a clue to the whole thing is found back in the first verse of chapter 2 when it said that they were all gathered together in one place. They very well could have been in the temple, and these individuals from other nations would have probably have been there uh, because of the Pentecost, which was an agricultural harvest festival. It's fascinating that the effect of the Holy Spirit's entrance on the scene was to, was to draw, um, was one that drew together those who were previously unable to communicate with one another. I don't know, if you think about the narrative of Scripture and, and where in the history of Scripture there was a time when language um, uh, came up. Uh, and how God did something to affect language. Can anybody think of something like that? Anybody think of... I thought of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, all the way back to Genesis 11. After the time of Noah and the flood, we're told that the whole earth had one language and the same words. Humanity had used unity not for the glorification of God or for the betterment of mankind, but instead they used it to make a name for themselves. Essentially, this is the story of how humanity forgot God. They decided to use the technological advancement of the day to build this great tower, uh, the technological advancement of the day being a brick, to build this great tower that reached high in the sky, And God says, behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. The people are dispersed all over the face of the earth, and it's in the wake of this that God calls Father Abraham and the rescue mission to save the world called Israel. But you see, God said, nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible. There is dangerous power in unity, my friends. That cannot be denied. You might even say that it is explosive. So when we fast forward to the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit arrives on the scene and the result is that people begin to understand each other, it's a reversal of the curse as described at the Tower of Babel. There will be no more babbling at one another. Instead, there will be the invitation to the new humanity, an invitation to to walk in the new creation with Jesus as King by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that the fruit of this Spirit's activity is the universal language of love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, goodness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. You want to know what dynamite looks like? You want to know what the power of the Holy Spirit looks like? 
It looks like you and I communicating to one another, uh, communicating with someone with whom we have nothing in common, inviting them to join God's ecclesia, His church. The power of the Holy Spirit looks like you being kind when the world is nasty. The power of the Holy Spirit looks like you being gentle when the world is violent. The power of the Holy Spirit is exercising self-control when the world offers nothing but vice and addiction. The power of the Holy Spirit is finding joy when the world preaches nothing but sarcasm and cynicism. The power of the Holy Spirit is you being patient when the world is in a hurry. You might say, well, that doesn't sound too powerful to me. Really? Really? Try it out. Try it out. I dare you. I double-dog dare you. Just try out the fruit of the Spirit and see what happens when you give your life to love. Watch the kind of power that really has. Watch what happens when you give way to kindness and see how your influence grows. Watch what happens when you choose the path of peace instead of violence. Watch what happens when you live into um, a life of discipline and self-control instead of temporary pleasure. You see, we're so hesitant. We want to say, no, no, God, that's not how the world works. And God wants to say there is a new king on the throne. Live like it. When you live like that, you watch how walls, how the walls that divide us will tumble and communication regarding the things that truly matter will be inflamed. Will there be times when it will feel like you are burned by the world that has taken advantage of you? Yes. I'm sorry, but yes. But as Paul says in Romans, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. This past weekend, or this past uh, week, we celebrated the 75th anniversary of D-Day. June 6, 1944 was the day that 160,000 Allied troops stormed the beaches of Normandy in order to position themselves on the continent in a way that would eventually defeat Nazi Germany. 9,000 men were killed or wounded But their sacrifice allowed for 100,000 troops to begin the journey to take down Hitler's forces for good. D-Day, you see, it wasn't the end of the war, but it was the decisive battle. It was the battle that set up the final drive to put an end to the war. In a similar way, Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross was the sacrifice that allowed for death to be defeated and the church to be positioned by the power of the Holy Spirit for the final drive against sin and death. You see, we still have work to do, but we should never lose sight of the fact that the decisive victory has already been won. Living into the freedom we now have in Christ is what it looks like to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, it will look quite odd to a watching world that still insists on living by another set of rules. On that morning of Pentecost, there were some who mocked 
what went on that day by joking that they are probably, ah, they're all just drunk. And Peter, you remember Peter, we talked about him a few weeks ago, about how Jesus turned his shortcomings into, com- into commission. He stands up in front of everyone and reminds them that it's only 9 o'clock in the morning, guys. These guys aren't drunk. drunk. Peter quotes from Joel. He says this, In the last days it shall be written, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and the signs of the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The early church had a powerful message. And they kind of had these, um, this, this message that, increased in numbers, that increased their numbers. And at one point, they asked, well, well, the people asked Peter, well, what is it that we should be doing? And he says this. He says, repent. Turn around. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter says these words. And in verse 41, we see that, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Holy Spirit comes on the scene and the church just explodes like dynamite. But God is with them the whole time. And I love this about how Acts chapter 2 ends. We get this picture. And I love, and this might just be the way the translation was written, or it might just be how the Greek works and all of that. But I, I, I saw this, and it had like a poetic cadence when I read it. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And, and, and the work, the power, the love of our God towards the people, towards towards his church, is one of generosity, generosity and power. I mean, what are you thinking about? And, And God blessed me with a family. And God blessed this church. And God took us from a movie theater to a church in Pikesville, to this church at St. Timothy's in, in Catonsville. 
And he gathered these people together. And he allowed families to start praising God together. And we started building into the life of children. And we started building into the life of our teens. And, and, and. I think that when we think about the gifts that God gives us, and the work that he's still to do in our midst, maybe our prayer today can just be, God, what's your answer? What's the next thing? What are we supposed to keep our eyes for? What are we looking out for as the Holy Spirit does the next thing in our midst? Because praise God, we can expect that he will continue and, and, and. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this story of this Pentecost, this moment when the Holy Spirit enlivened your church, empowered your church to communicate with others with clarity, to spread this gospel message, to invite others to your table, to your assembly, to your community, to your gathering. Father, I just ask that you speak to us this morning, that your Holy Spirit would whisper to us the things that you're calling us to do the things that you're calling us to be, the ways that we are called to live out your resurrection, the ways that you're calling us to be the evidence of the resurrection to our city, to our our county, to our work, to our school. Father, I just ask you that you fill us with your spirit. Enliven us to be the person that you designed us to be. Because who we are in you, Father, is the definition of who we are, period. Father, I pray all of this in the name of of Jesus Christ.